0: Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I am your host, James DePietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I'm proud to welcome Pasadena City College Board of Trustee, Sandra Chen Lau. Sandra grew up in Monterey Park after her family immigrated from mainland China. Before graduating from UC Riverside, a bachelor's degree in political science and Chinese literature, and then a master's degree from UCLA, she attended Rio Hondo Community College. This experience and exposure to the community college system would play a large role in shaping how she viewed education and why, years later, she got involved with PCC. Like so many stories, she began working with nonprofits and in educational development by accident, and during her career, She has worked for such storied institutions as CAUSE, a community-based organization to advance political and civic engagement in the Asian Pacific American community, Pacific Oaks College in Pasadena, the School of Public Affairs at UCLA, the School of Architecture at USC, and the Japanese American National Museum. In January of this year, she was appointed as the Chief Advancement Officer of the American Film Institute, all the while operating her own philanthropy and advancement consultant firm. While serving on Pasadena's Northwest Commission, she ran for, and was elected to, passing the City College's seven-member board of trustees in 2018. As you will hear, Sandra wanted to bring her experience in education, at a time when PCC was in the midst of incredible challenges. Since then, PCC has made progress. However, with COVID, PCC is again facing serious headwinds, some of which we get into, and some of which we don't and Sandra is running for re-election to continue her work as a force for positive change. So, without further delay, my conversation with PCC Board of Trustee Sandra Chen-Lao. Sandra, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, you have a really interesting career that's taken you from studying political science and urban planning to leading advancement at AFI. So to start our conversation, can you share a little bit more about your background as your family has an incredible immigrant story?
1: Sure. My parents immigrated from Beijing um, to the United States when I was six years old, um, seven years old. And as with many of these immigrant stories, right? They believe that um, America had a wonderful education opportunity. Uh, They came from mainland China which at the time uh, was quite rare. We came in the 1980s, and that was right after Nixon visited China and had opened um, US-China relations. So when I came to the United States, um, I came um, from mainland China when most of the um, Chinese immigrants came from Taiwan or Hong Kong. So we were really an anomaly um, in 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 Monterey Park, of all places. And so my background is that I am um, bilingual, um, and I speak Mandarin, um, but Beijing Mandarin, as opposed to Taiwanese Mandarin. And growing up in Monterey Park, you know, certainly that was a an eye-opening experience for me, because when you think about going to America, you don't think about being in a community where there's predominantly Asians or Chinese Americans. You think about Texas, you think of, you know, um, cowboys and, you know, you, and so that's what led me to be interested in, um, moving in toward the part about education and, um, and that's, how I got started is to really think about being a bilingual um, learner in elementary school and how we can continue to support um, communities who may need an an in-language support through education.
0: Based on your nonprofit work and your dedication to education, you must have Mm -hmm. had very strong influences. Who are some of your early mentors that were especially important to you and why?
1: I would begin with my father because he was branded as an intellectual during the Cultural Revolution in China. And he was sent to the countryside to be re-educated, right? um, to be with the commoners. And um, when he was there, he believed that um, education and knowledge equaled freedom because you can't take away someone's knowledge, you can't take away someone's learning or um, their motivation to learn. And so when we came to the United States and we talked about college opportunities, my father didn't really think about the Ivy League schools or the UCs, you know. What he thought is that if you could get a college education in the United States anywhere, right, any college, that is going to be a terrific education. So he believed in the um, higher ed system in the United States and that's how I became so involved um, with education and especially at the community college level. And so that's, um, he's one one mentor. Another mentor um, that really shaped how I thought about or place in the education system is a woman named Trisha Toyota. I don't know if um, people of a certain age will remember her, but she was the first um, Asian um, co-anchor to be on the national news. Um, she was the first co-anchor to Dan Rather. And she became her second or third career a professor at UCLA in anthropology. And what I learned from her is, again, is that you can have many careers in your life and here she was having just a wonderful career in broadcast journalism and then became a professor in anthropology because she wanted to study society systems and so she also inspired me to really look at uh, my role in education and in higher education
0: you mentioned UCLA before you received your bachelor's degree in political science and Chinese studies at UC Riverside, mm-hmm. and then you, and you mentioned your master's degree from UCLA in urban planning, you attended Rio Hondo Community College in Whittier and learned firsthand the power of community colleges. How critical was your time at Rio Hondo in your educational and professional careers?
1: It certainly impacted me quite a bit. And I will tell you why, because I did not do well in a four-year institution, just graduating from high school. I went to Cal State Long Beach, wanted to be a broadcast journalist, and they eliminated the, the, the journalism class. And so I really floundered a bit, not knowing what I wanted to do next. And I was able to then take some classes at Rio Condo College, where it really opened my eyes to not just the various options there were with coursework and curriculum, but also who, was, who were attending community colleges with me, right? So there was a lot of socioeconomic diversity, racial, ethnic diversity, and intergenerational diversity. So I felt that it was really a reflection of the community that I lived in at the time, and I realized that, wow, there are other pathways to academic success and then going into a UC or a, an Ivy League school or a Cal State University. So I felt that it gave me a second chance to really show what my academic progress can be. And so I graduated you know, there with you know, high grades, um, high GPA, and then was able to transfer to UC Riverside.
0: You have a long career in, with nonprofits, mm-hmm. primarily mm-hmm. cultural and educational groups, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. What attracted you to working with and for nonprofits and focusing on advancement?
1: It's really by accident, actually. I was out of college and you know, looking for a job. I happened to volunteer at an event where, at the time, Gary Locke, was uh, was running for governor of Washington, and he was the first Chinese American to run for governor in the mainland um, of the United States. And it just so happens that I did a great job as a volunteer and the chair of the organization cause said, are you do you need a job? And I said, as a matter of fact, I do. And so that's how I started um, with a non- in the nonprofit sector, I was in my 20s, you know, I was um, the executive director, and for a small small nonprofit, you do everything, right? You are the janitor, you are the um, person who's working with donors, you are the one who's giving interviews to media outlets, so I did everything, and I just thought what a great learning experience that was, and then I thought about how hard it was to Uh, raise money for these nonprofits, right? We're always on this treadmill. Every year we had to hit a or budget and we have to get revenue. And for a small not for nonprofit, it was very much there wasn't a system, a fundraising system, like people just, you know, raise money from who they knew, or maybe some of the corporations that were out there. So that really piqued my interest in how can I be helpful for institutions to help them have a sustainable fundraising Program and when I um, was recruited to go to UCLA, it was in such an eye-opening experience because UCLA was this you know large institution, very um, had an infrastructure in fundraising, and I thought, wow, how could these smaller mid-sized nonprofits compete with the UCLA's and all that? And then I realized that there just wasn't enough fundraising professionals. Um, who are working with these smaller nonprofits and there just wasn't enough resources and for these nonprofits, there has to be a realization is that for them to meet and succeed or, or meet their mission, they need financial resources. And oftentimes in the nonprofit sector, we don't like to talk about money because we're supposed to be doing this you know with a goodwill and um, but to be able to serve, your constituency and meet the mission. You have to have financial resources to be able to do that. So that's how I got interested in it.
0: And you've held development roles at various schools here in Southern California. You worked for UCLA, you worked for Pacific Oaks College here in Pasadena, and then you also worked for USC, which is kind of interesting that you worked for both USC and UCLA. My husband have-
1: was so happy that I worked for USC because he's a he went to USC undergrad and grad school and... It, it, it i mean i can tell it's very different UCLA USC right and and i could tell you a little bit more about it but you, uh, your question <laughs> i wanted to you...
0: No it's okay I, I would love to hear more about that that's really <laughs> kind of interesting and then most recently you've been named the chief advancement officer for the prestigious american film institute you know these are very different groups mm-hmm. you know how do you approach working for such different institutions
1: That's a really good question you know at you at UCLA I have just come off working at a small nonprofit, right? And so it was very much learning about the nuts and bolts of fundraising. How do you institutionalize fundraising in an organization? And it wasn't until I went to USC did I realize that UCLA was probably 10 years behind USC in fundraising because then USC was a private school. And it, it had a very... It had a very robust and proactive, you know, fundraising system. UCLA, at the time that I was there, you know, was still, was still raising money, but not the, not the big, big dollars that UIC was doing. But I know that's changed now, because what we're seeing is that organizations like UCLA, where historically would have been a publicly funded institution, is now what we call publicly assisted so it it counts on 70% um, percent of dollars on philanthropy dollars right and so whereas for usc it had this culture of philanthropy you know certainly early on and it will continue to do that but it has a very different investment approach to philanthropy so for example when i started at usc in 2010 we had 290 frontline fundraisers raising money, and that was 300 million dollars a year. When I left, it about six years um, afterwards. It had 400 frontline fundraisers raising 800 million dollars a year. And so, when you look at the type of investments that you know large institutions pour into fundraising, you know, you, then the smaller size and mid-sized organizations, it's very hard to compete with that. And so that's why one of the reasons I left UIC is because I thought UIC didn't need another chief development officer like me, but certainly other organizations that are smaller in size, you know, that are mission-driven, that serve diverse constituency can certainly may use my help. And that's how I Um, landed at the um, Japanese American National Museum, and now at the American Film Institute.
0: No, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. So let's dive right into community service, education, Mm -hmm. and your work on the PCC board. So you were elected in June of 2018 to PCC's Board of Trustees, uh, which is the college's seven-person policy and governance body. But before this, you were on the board of directors of the PCC Foundation Mm -hmm. and were on its Pacific Islander Advisory Council. So how did you first get involved with PCC? And then why did you decide to run for the board of trustees?
1: I got involved with PCC because I came from a community college um, in Rio Hondo and because I lived in Pasadena. I thought, well, how can I be of service? You know, in working with a local um, community college, and that's how I got involved with um, the PCC Foundation, and and in my work in philanthropy, right? And so I thought that would be a nice combination of both education and fundraising with the Asian Pacific American uh, Presidents Advisory Council. You know, that came about because there was a need. To really look at new leadership in serving on that council. PCC has over 20% of its student population who are Asian Pacific American Islander, and 80% of that population are Chinese or international Chinese students. And because I'm bilingual and I speak the language, you know, I thought that I can again help bridge that constituency with PCC. As well. And that led to, you know, just my more um, curiosity about what was happening at PCC. And so when I was doing some research about, you know, what was happening at PCC, I found that PCC was actually put on academic probation in 2015. And being in higher ed, and seeing that um, the accreditation agency put out an academic probation for PCC was quite alarming for me, to be honest. And I've worked with accreditation agency during my time at Pacific Oaks, you know, and certainly at UIC um, and, you know, these institutions. I realized that this is a pretty serious issue. And so I read the report and just dove deeper into it. And the main thrust of the criticism and of the seriousness of the report was board governance. It spoke about the board dysfunction. It spoke about the board's relationship or lack of relationship with the faculty. The campus climate had low morale. So those were all issues that concerned me and that's why I ran for the PCC board.
0: Now, with your unique background and experience, what did you think you could bring to the board to kind of address some of the issues that you kind of just touched upon?
1: That's a really good question. Part of it is really having someone with higher education background and higher education experience. I think a lot of times, you know, it's great to have you know folks who are on the board from different professions, my colleagues did not come from the the higher education realm. So I thought that having someone like me who does come from that space can really work with the various constituencies um, and stakeholders. And part of this is also working with um, parents and families because oftentimes parents are not as involved in these community college um, discussions. and, and, And I thought that it was important to engage parents and the community in this space. That's why during my term, I've had multiple, you know, meet and greets and coffee and conversation, because I feel that it's important for the community to understand what PCC does and what PCC provides, and the opportunities that PCC offers, not just to the students, Um, certainly that is a priority, but also to the community as a whole and that we are a resource, right? So for example, I talked about dual enrollment with the La Cunada School District. Before I served on the board, there were no dual enrollment classes with La Cunada District. And it was great to work with the La Cunada Superintendent and school board members. And so within nine months, we were able to put six um, dual enrollment classes, which means that high school students can now take college courses at PCC, and the PCC faculty actually come onto the La Cunyata campus to teach. And so, you know, it's that type of partnership that I was looking to bring to the board. And I'm really thrilled that we have been able to continue to do that.
0: When you were first elected, one of your goals was to work to rebuild the morale, to promote success for all students, and to focus on the future through fiscal responsibility. Do you think that PCC has made progress on these goals?
1: It's been um, very difficult, and certainly there's the, the combination of the pandemic, um, what we're experiencing in our social political landscape. You know, those are very serious issues that we are facing serious times. PCC has an enrollment decline right now. We were at 23,000 students pre-pandemic or even higher. And now we are full-time equivalent students. We're down to 13,000 students. So that means there are 10,000 students who are not coming to PCC. And I would have to say a majority of those students our Latino and our Latino, African American or Asian American students, because we are a minority um, majority institution. So to me, there's a sense of urgency in how we address the enrollment decline, even though I know that, you know, enrollment decline is across the board at community colleges, but our decline is between 30 to 50%, you know, whichever numbers that you're looking at, whether it's full-time equivalent or enrollment in courses. So I see that the landscape in education has shifted so much since 2018, right? There are seismic shifts that are happening in education that We, as a community, as a collective community, have to be responsive to these really hard decisions that we're going to need to make or these hard conversations that we're going to be having. Right now, financially, PCC is fine because we are in this hold and harmless spot where we are funded by our, um, with our. 23,000 enrollment numbers. I don't know how long that's going to be, whether the governor is going to change its um, funding for us next year or the year after. Um, And there will be some financial consequences um, if we don't bring up our enrollment numbers. But outside of the financial consequences, James, it's really, I think, the path to academic success for students, that's for those 10,000 students, right? So that means there are 10,000 students out there that are not on their pathway to getting their transfer degree or to taking their classes. So that's also what I'm concerned about. Where are they? Um, how can we get them back? Um, what can we do to support them to continue on? And these are the conversations that I would like to see my colleagues and the president of PCC have continuously in the coming months.
0: You mentioned a couple of really big issues, and I think we're going to address some of those in the next couple of questions that I have, but what's been like to serve on the board during the pandemic? And what have you found incredibly inspiring?
1: What I found inspiring during this time is that there are students who continue to move forward, right? They continue to Come to class um, online, and they continue to power through this, even though they may have their challenges with their families or with their jobs, or you know, with pivoting to online in just two weeks. But yet they persevere to get their degree, and I'm so proud of these students and their and the opportunity for them to see themselves, you know, be successful. I'm also very inspired by faculty members who did not give up either. There's been some faculty who have, who are teaching, you know, who are, when they um, had to pivot online, right? They had to learn new um, technology to teach their students. They have to come up with new lesson plans, right? And so I think that it's very inspirational to see that there is an, an intention to still continue the success of PCC with both students and um, faculty working together. And and that's what I would like to see moving forward is a continuing dialogue uh, on how we can better serve our stakeholders, whether it's students, faculty, or staff. Um, We can constantly improve um, what we're doing. And because we need to, right? Because so much is evolving in education and we need to keep pace with it. And we cannot just be satisfied with the status quo because the status quo is not working for quite a bit of people.
0: The pandemic has really shifted some of our priorities, obviously. And then also kind of how we see and what our attitudes are toward community colleges. I was doing research on this episode and I came across an article that the state of Maryland removed a formal college degree requirement in order to bring in more uh, essential workers. Do you think students and employers are thinking differently about community colleges now?
1: Yes and no. Um, there was just a recent survey that was done by the Public Policy Institute of California that asked parents what college options do they want, do they see their children Uh, taking. And only two out of 10 parents said they would like their children to explore community colleges. And so I do think that we have some ways to go in educating um, parents and our community about the benefits of community colleges. And that's why I feel that programs like the dual enrollment programs that we have with La Cunada and I got to say with PUSD, Pasadena Unified School district. There are over thirty classes, you know, dual enrollment classes that we need to have much more proactive community engagement with our K through twelve districts with our community partners because people need to understand that. Now, I think, and I certainly don't want to take credit for this, but I do think that in my conversations with some of the La Cunata families, parents are now aware that well, there's an economic savings that they can um, have as a family by taking GE classes, college courses at PCC. They can save a year's of tuition and tuition at USC is 72,000 and two years, that's 150,000. And so if you have economic concerns or that you can use um, PCC, utilize PCC, as a way to have um, economic savings. I also do think that there are also families out there who understand that their children who just graduated may not be ready for college. And they may wanna take a gap year and why not explore classes at PCC where there isn't that pressure to have to succeed with, you know, a 4.0, or, you know, that they can explore, right? Steve Jobs explored, you know, um, calligraphy classes, you know, and he came up with the fonts, right? And so, you know, there, it's really allowing our children to really think about education in a very, in a much more creative way versus this academic driven, structured way. So I, So that's why I think that for community colleges, we have an opportunity here to change the conversation, right? So to about, and the narrative about community colleges, and we have to be very intentional and we have to be consistent with our messaging. And then we have to treat this as if it's an urgency and what i see in the california community college system is that it has been a system that is evolving it has been a system that has seen its challenges because over 70 close to 70% of community college students at in california do not graduate right so that's that leaves only 30% the average number of years to get a two year degree in a California community college is six years. So my advocacy on this is, can you imagine USC students getting USC degree, a four-year degree with six years? You would see parents knocking on the president's door <laughs> and, or at UCLA or any of the UCs, right? So why is that different for community colleges? So there's a sense of impatience in me That maybe I'm articulating that I feel that our students and families deserve better. And we need to be on the forefront of looking at ways to close these gaps and to ensure that the opportunities and the standards are there for community college students.
0: The cost of higher education is a a huge issue. I know you've addressed it. And community colleges are are a really great option for families that can't afford four years of private university or college. You mentioned the cost of USC. I didn't realize it was up to 75,000 now. It's, <laughs> yes. it's, it's, it's mind boggling. Yes. And I think, I think anyone that's gone to a four year university can agree that the first first year or two, you can probably do anywhere. You don't need to be at you know an Ivy league school to get through those years. Obviously higher education costs are you know applied to the big universities and colleges, but also PCC as well. How do we address the cost of higher education to increase access for students?
1: The, the way that I see this is that, and going to back, back to your question, I mean, certainly there is a tendency, right, to look at colleges now as brands, you know, and you're paying for a certain brand. But I also understand that, you know, there are families and parents that want their child to experience The full four year college experience. And there's no question about that. But at the same time, there's a recent study that shows that California needs a million degree holders (laughs) for jobs in the coming 10 years. And where are those million degrees going to come from? You know, even if you have the highest graduation rates for UCs and CSUs and private colleges combined, you're not gonna hit a million degree holders, right? So that's gonna have to come from community colleges. Now, the budget for the California state budget, you know, has increased for higher education. So, So certainly with the $97 million in surplus that we have in the California budget for this fiscal year, I would say a majority of that is going to go into education. Um, so how we how we spend that money, you know, and what programs are targeted for that money is going to be a conversation. But I do know that having just had a conversation with the chief consultant to the um, Assembly Budget Committee, that we are looking at maybe another hundred. 25 million dollars more for community colleges, but another 800 million dollars more for K through 12 schools. So I do think that there is going to be a two prong approach. Is that we have to fund K through 12, you know, so that there is adequate preparation um, for high school and then for community colleges. So funding, to me, is there for the next, I would say, two to three years. And so how we are going to use that funding, how are we gonna implement, how are we gonna execute? I mean, those are the questions that we need to um, work together on to solve.
0: You mentioned the drop in enrollment. This is not just a PCC issue. This is a statewide issue. It's a national issue. In California, it's 15%. I think it's probably around that. And nationally, the percentage is larger for PCC. Yes. How do you think we get more students back after the pandemic? as we know that education is so critical to their long-term professional and economic success?
1: What we're seeing is that um, we are seeing that students are looking into the job force to make a living, right? You know, So we have non-traditional students that come through PCC. But one of the interesting um, statistics, statistics that we saw across California community colleges is that one of the reasons why students drop and they don't come back is because they have a fee hold on their registration. And the average fees hold for them is about forty one dollars. So if you remove that forty one dollars in in what they own in you know student fees or you know what they didn't pay over the years, you can actually get, Students back, so I know that Compton, you know, Community College, just is, is looking into that, and certainly I would love for PCC to see, you know, what what can be done. Um, but during the pandemic, we were able to hold fee waivers, so that we can get students. Part of this is that I'm a big believer in community engagement and community outreach because we are a district that encompasses, you know, from La Cunada, all the way to El Monte, you know, so we are a huge um, single district right we serve over a quarter million population. In the San Gabriel Valley and certainly in the foothills, and so I believe that we need to have much more visibility and presence in engaging communities so it's us. PCC going out to the communities, not waiting for communities to come to us. Um, So I think that our satellite programs have worked, you know, whether it was in Rosemead or whether we're going to be in Northwest Pasadena, I think we're going to need to be out in the community much more. Arizona State University, um, even though they are a private university, um, they are really reaching out what they call these local programs. So they're going everywhere, every corner of the the nation. And their model is ASU local, right? And so I feel like we can certainly scale it on a smaller way, but I would love to see, you know, PCC be in many places um, in the San Gabriel and the Foothill communities.
0: PCC is of Pasadena, but it serves the greater San Gabriel Valley and beyond as a local institution, how can Pasadena itself support PCC's mission and its students? And I say that as a Pasadena resident, you're a Pasadena resident. How can the city of Pasadena support PCC?
1: That's a really great question. Um, I do think that PCC has really received a great support just by word of mouth, right? I mean, if you talk to anybody with their experience of PCC outside of Some of the concerns that we have about registering for classes, usually there is a real warmth to to PCC and we will continue to work with our community. I think one of the things, uh, one of the ways that Pasadena can support PCC is we're looking for a um, bond measure in November or maybe that's coming up. And we really need to support the facilities at PCC. You may see that it's beautiful, light up, um, the Stratford Library when you drive past it in the evening or the nice pool, (laughs) reflection pool. But if we look at the classrooms, if we look at the flow of curriculum, and if we look at the learning environment, PCC does need renovations and it does need upgrades. And for the past 10 years, PCC students have been learning science from science bungalows and not a science building and not um, science labs. So I feel like in terms of providing the facilities and the learning environment for students, we are a, a few decades behind. And we need to show our students that they are in a learning environment where they have the best Resources, and so that's one thing that I would urge um, Pasadena citizens and residents is to support is that when that bond uh, measure comes up to support it. Also, because PCC contributes over six hundred million dollars in economic activity, you no know, pre-COVID, and so it's I think it's a great partnership where we are an important resource for the city and vice versa.
0: In addition to your work at AFI, your own consulting work, your community service, and then being on the board of trustees, you're also a mother. And we talked about this before we started our conversation. (laughs) And our kids are walking in behind us (laughs) as we speak, which is perfect timing. Yes, My kids have asked for snacks several times during this (laughs) conversation. So how has being a parent changed your view of education and how you approach your work with schools and the PCC board?
1: Being a parent has changed it um, tremendously, especially during the pandemic. And my sense of urgency comes from this realization of the disparities that we're seeing. The fact that both my husband and I are working for professionals, we're having trouble educating our children during the pandemic, spoke to me in a way that says, if we have the resources and to navigate through the system and we're not as successful as we would like to be, what chances do someone who is making minimum wage or on the front line um, having to both work a nine to five job with kids in school, how are they able, how are they going to be able to be successful in educating their children? So that's why I am even more committed and even more motivated to have these discussions about education. And some of this are are, are difficult conversations to have, right? When you look at the um, dropout rates of kids that are going to PUSD. When you look at the uh, non graduation rate of PCC, these are hard to talk about because people want to talk about success. And of course, you know, P- PCC deserves to be recognized for the success. But under that success, there are multiple layers of populations that are not succeeding. And we need to be very honest and candid about who those people are and how we can support them, and what we can improve. And so I feel very adamant about that there is only a certain window of time that we can address, you know, these issues before, you know, it falls out of favor, you know, before it's another, it's another topic. You know, I'm on the um, Los Angeles County School Trustees Association Board, I would love to host and get an education summit together in our local community so that we can bring parents together, educators together, policymakers together to have that type of conversation because each stakeholder alone cannot solve this problem, right? We cannot just be talking to ourselves. I mean, the board can't just be talking to ourselves. We need to engage. And there is going to be conflict you know, or disagreements when we engage and we talk about these policies. But I feel that it's so important to bring all the constituencies on board so that people understand the complexities and that then they can be advocates. And so that's a bit of my mission is in my next term, is to continue to have you know, these dialogues and certainly appreciate your platform, James, for having me on and to have these important dialogues and these courageous conversations. And some people call them difficult conversations, but I think it's, you know, brave conversations that we need to have. And then we need to be able to implement and execute. Sometimes it's not a funding issue. Sometimes it's a vision Issue, it's an implementation issue, it's an execution issue. And so I like to get to the bottom of it, right? So, what is it going to take to close these gaps? You know, what is it that we can accomplish? What is it that we can measure? What are the metrics? And I do think that the voters and the the taxpayers, they want to know what we're doing with their money. And I think it's important for us to be able to um, report back on it. And that's why I think it's, it's, it's really a collective responsibility of all of us, you know, to hold each other accountable.
0: What are some of the most important values that you like to instill in your own children through your example of public service?
1: I would like them to be kind, <laughs> you know, because I think to have that empathy is very important because there's so many different perspectives, right? There's so many different point of views. I would like for them to listen to different point of views. I would like them to be honest and to be able to feel that they are free to to share their point of view without judgment. So that they can be honest you know how nice to would as adults if we could just be honest with how we really think without having to um censor ourselves you know and and, and certainly to come from that place of intention right i think you have to have uh, good intentions and i think children can really sense that when they know that you're coming from a, a good place They believe you and they trust you. And that's what I would like to instill in my children is that that they are kind and respectful and that they are honest, you know, and that they can stand up and be a voice, you know, for someone who may not be able to to, um, stand up for themselves. And so in public service, I think oftentimes we're put in positions that it's hard to pick sides. You know, I do think that when the rubber meets a road. There are very clear right and wrongs. And I would love for my children to be able to distinguish and be able to to know, you know, what's right and what's wrong and be able to stand up for that.
0: Well, my final serious question before we're going to get into some lighter questions to the close, civic engagement and public service are so critical to our community success. And you are a leading example of this. What advice would you give to a young person that was interested in getting involved in serving Pasadena or even running for a public office? Because you are a public office holder.
1: Yes, I would tell a young person just do it. Don't be afraid, right? I think that a lot of times people would say, well, it's not a good time. There's never a good time. James, you know, (laughs) there's never a good time to have a baby and there's never a good time (laughs) to run for office. So, you know, I would tell a young person that you would be surprised how many people would be rooting for you when you do it. I think there is such a need for the next generation to step up and many of them have. And there's a, certainly, you know, when we look at um, the protests, you know, being out on the streets, you know, the second iteration of that is, well, there's gotta be policy changes, right? So, you know, activism is one way and, policy changes and you know being able to make policy that benefits you know communities that's the second iteration of activism and civic engagement and i do think that that's what i would tell a young person i don't know if i should say this on this platform but i'm 48 years old <laughs> on and i'm the youngest person on the pcc board and so when we look at and where can you be 48 and be the youngest person somewhere I don't know but I am on the PCC board. And so I guess what I'm saying is that you know we need you know diversity whether it's ethnic, racial, whether it's socioeconomic, we also need generational diversity, right? I want to know what a millennial is thinking. I want to know what a Gen Z is thinking and and, and 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 how and I think that will move, you know, our community forward. And so I'm a big proponent of that.
0: So I thought okay. that we'd have a couple fun questions to close sure. our conversation because we are recording this on the Friday before, before Memorial Day. Okay. So we need to kind of close on a positive note. Yes. Um, you've shared that you really enjoy passing this commitment to the arts and culture. Right. So what are some of your favorite places to visit here in Pasadena? And these places could be for adults or for families.
1: So I love there's a little secret, it's not gonna be a secret anymore. There's a little secret koi pond right on Euclid and between Euclid and Del Mar and Cordova. And I love it because it's so quiet. And you know, I, I used to joke with my kids that my office mates are the koi fishes in the pond because when you when you need that little break you can just go to that point you don't have to drive you know for me i don't have to drive but you know it's just such a zen place to to think and you would never know that it's there and i'm really um gonna be sad if they develop that space (laughs) and make it into another um uh complex but but that's one of my um, favorite places to go and you know, we are a big proponent of parks, public parks, my husband's on the California Parks Foundation Board. And so, you know, any kind of parks, um, we love, and we think that there's, you know, you, you just see so much, so many different people coming together at those parks, right. And so, so that's what I, Really enjoy and on the art side, you know, of course, there's the Armory, the Pacific Asia Museum, the Norton Simon. I used to go to the Norton Simon every few months, and it was just the right size museum where you know you, you can visit it in a few hours or or a whole day if you like, and it wasn't overwhelming. And it was it's just been curated so well. So that's you know those are some of my um, favorite places.
0: Those are all good suggestions. What are some of the best places to have a meal, grab a cup of coffee, or to enjoy a drink here in Pasadena?
1: Well, I, I'm going to have to say Ceriso's. <laughs> Jack Wong. I'm going to give props to Jack. Um, he's been in the, in the business for such a long time, 30 years. And, he, and it's the local um, businesses like Jack's who's been here for so long that makes Pasadena so special, right? And I feel like, you know, oftentimes, you know, it's always the, the new shiny thing that we like here, but really um, the backbone of the local economy are the longtime business folks who have stuck with Pasadena for a long time. So I like Sarisos. Um, I like, we go to California Pizza Kitchen a lot because there's an outdoor space, <laughs> you know, and so the kids um, run around. But a lot of times my husband and I, on our date night, we just go to sugar fish. You know, it's great. You always get the best there and you know it. And so it's consistent. We're all about consistency.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. Well, Sandra, thank you for being such a great part of Pasadena for being a leading voice in our community for improving education And for coming on the podcast, I greatly appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me and thank you for your work and for this platform to bring us together in Pasadena. Thank you.
0: My many thanks to Sandra for coming on the show and for her service to Pasadena. For more information and to support Sandra's campaign, Please visit her website at sandra4pccboard.com, and remember that the election is Tuesday, June 7th, if you haven't already voted by mail. As Sandra described, PCC and the entire community college system face some significant challenges, with declining enrollment playing a large role in current and future funding. Such issues have really fueled a sense of urgency in Sandra, and I am encouraged that she is working hard to try to recognize and address these concerns. Communication and transparency seem to be key issues for Sandra, and her hosting a series of community forums and informal campus conversations with faculty, students, and the broader community are constructive steps in building a stronger PCC. And thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show wherever you get your podcasts and sponsoring it directly or through Patreon. I would love your feedback, comments, or suggestions. You can reach me at james at com and follow me on Instagram. You've been listening to the Crown City Podcast. Until next time, please remember to stay well, stay engaged, and as always, see you around town.